Chapter 9 Old and New Role Models We will not sell our freedom for all the gold in the world. Motto of the City-State Ragusa, 1358-1808 There is little really new under the sun. The free cities and city-states of classical antiquity and the Middle Ages are as much forerunners and role models for free private cities as today's successful city-states. Of course, this does not apply to all aspects of how they were run. But with regard to the basic problems of human societies under discussion, we do find a few things that can serve as a guide for practice in free private cities. Ancient Greek City-States circa 800 B.C. to 700 A.D. During the heyday of ancient Greek culture, between 800 and 300 B.C., there were over 1,000 settlements of the Greek polis type in the Mediterranean region. These communities were similarly organized and structured, had the same language and religion, they met for joint competitions such as the Olympic Games, and also entered into various alliances. Nevertheless, all these city-states were keen on their complete political independence and self-determination. They defined themselves through the community of their citizens and their ideas. A little boy is said to have asked his father in one of the Greek city-states, Do other places have their own moon? Of course, the father replied. Everyone has his own moon. The counter-model to the polis, especially in northern Greece, was the ethnos, the tribal community that included larger settlement areas. The most famous ethnos was Macedonia, which became the strongest military power at the time and conquered a world empire under Alexander the Great, which, however, did not last long. By contrast, Greek culture, which developed in the polis at that time, is still one of the cornerstones of European civilization today. Aristotle, who coined the terms theory and practice and, among other things, taught biology, physics, logic, and state theory, was born in the independent small town of Stagira before later moving to Athens, a larger but equally independent polis. In this respect, it should be noted that despite their small size, a large number of autonomous communities had performed tremendously in cultural terms, although the vast majority of these societies were predominantly agrarian. Of course, it was also the ability to sail and trade, economic specialization and exchange, constant innovation and high mobility, which made the explosion of new communities in the Mediterranean and Black Sea possible. From a purely geographic point of view, the Mediterranean region is particularly suitable for this, and if there were a renaissance of independent cities, then the Mediterranean would still be an ideal place for it today. However, it can also be observed in the Greek city-states that political systems of government develop according to a certain pattern. It began with a rule of the landowners, who were equal among themselves, and divided the offices among themselves, a kind of aristocratic republic. Later, ever wider circles of the population were added to the franchise, and eventually a kind of redistributive mass democracy developed, followed by a dictatorship. The problems of democracy discussed above had also occurred in Greece. In particular, demagogues gradually took power under the flag of equality. The transition from a moderate democracy with aristocratic elements to a radical democracy 
finally led to a century of hegemonic wars. In fact, a period of tyranny followed until Macedonia and finally the Roman Empire took power in Greece. Conservative city-states like Sparta did not develop into democracies and consequently did not suffer from tyrants. They retained an aristocratic system, but deliberately refrained from creating a society based on any division of labor in order to maintain these power relations and thus fell behind economically. Nevertheless, even in Roman times, the Greek city-states retained a certain independence and enjoyed their prosperity. The final decline of the Greek polis did not occur until the Islamic expansion beginning in the 7th century. A polis was usually organized as follows. The city was independent. Today, one would say, a sovereign subject of international law and passed all laws on its own. This will to self-determination seemed to be an important basic consensus even in small cities and was accompanied by a corresponding will to defend itself. There was general conscription, and each citizen had the duty to arm and equip himself for military campaigns. As a rule, there were popular assemblies, councils, and magistrates, that is, a separation of legislative and executive branches. In addition, there was an independent judiciary which often took the form of elected jury courts. The offices were allocated either by election or by lot, the latter being considered particularly democratic. Only adult, male, armed citizens, polites, were entitled to vote actively and passively. Women, children, residents from outside, and slaves were excluded from political decision-making and participation in self-government. One usually became a citizen by descent from other citizens while having economic independence. Women and children of a polite were not entitled to vote but had citizenship. There was equality before the law for all citizens. The individual polites were largely economically independent through their ownership of a plot of land that could be cultivated agriculturally and could ensure the maintenance of the family. In principle, ownership of land was freely negotiable, lendable, and heritable. There were public buildings and a central meeting place, the Agora. There were local holidays and locally venerated gods which were added to the dominant Greek pantheon. In addition, the cities had their own coins, their own armed forces, and sometimes even their own fleet. Greek city-states and the associated political form of organization have shaped the concept of the citizen in Western states to this day. The historian Ober cites the following reasons for the long period of Greek prosperity and the continuing impact of ancient Greek cultural achievements up to the present. Competition between systems that led to constant technical and institutional innovation. The decentralized structure of communities that guaranteed overall political stability even without centralized leadership. Reliable rules and civil rights that made investments possible and kept transaction costs low. These are all aspects that would once again have an impact in a world of free private cities. But also the idea that only those who can contribute to defense and take care of themselves should have a say in the fate of the community has proven itself over centuries. Another aspect that still holds true today is that there must be the will to fight for your independence if necessary. Otherwise, self-determination cannot be maintained in the long term. Free Imperial Cities of the Middle Ages 
approximately 1100 to 1800. In the Middle Ages, people in Central Europe were restricted by sovereigns, local princes and bishops who demanded high taxes and regulated daily life down to the smallest detail. The emperor was far away and had little power. For those who sought freedom, self-determination, and economic improvement, there was only one way out. They had to get to a free imperial city. Because at that time the slogan, City Air Will Set You Free, Stadluf macht frei was literally true. Those who escaped serfdom and were not caught again after a period of one year and one day would be free. It was best not to leave the city during this period. After year and day, one was considered a free man. Why could free imperial cities even exist? Why did the princes let this happen? Indeed, they were the result of a long struggle of their inhabitants for more self-determination. This defiance from the respective lord of the city, marked by many setbacks, finally led to a kind of municipal constitution up to and including extensive independence, free cities, or direct subordination under imperial sovereignty, imperial cities. The latter was in fact also to be equated with autonomy, for the emperor was weak and the few institutions at the imperial level played no role in daily life. The emperor's power could not be compared with that of the head of government of today's states. It was far weaker. There was neither a right of taxation nor a standing army or other police force that the emperor could have called up. In Cologne, the first major uprising against the ruling archbishop took place in 1074 because of his injustices to Cologne merchants. This revolt was brutally beaten down. But the urge for more independence could not be stopped. In 1103, a new court is first mentioned in the sources, the Schaffenkollig, which was independent of the archbishop. From 1130 on, the jurors called themselves senators according to the Roman model. In 1216, the first city council was established against the resistance of the archbishop. Finally, in 1288, the people of Cologne allied themselves with one of the surrounding territorial princes against their archbishop and defeated him in the Battle of Warringen. Since then, the people of Cologne have governed themselves. The people of Cologne were able to assert themselves in the following period because the economic power of the city also led to military power. This was facilitated by the technical situation that, given enough supplies, one could defend oneself behind strong walls against almost any attacker. Since standing armies were expensive, the citizens were obliged to do military service in times of emergency. Thus, every man fit for military service was assigned a position on the city wall according to his residential area. Similar developments took place elsewhere. The free imperial cities flourished and attracted new settlers in great numbers. The surrounding area also benefited from this. And then something surprising happened. The previous rulers suddenly no longer tried to prevent urban independence, but on the contrary promised residents and new settlers guaranteed city rights on their territory. They knew about the economic prosperity of free cities and thus calculated their own advantage. They granted corresponding privileges and were guided by the rules that the established free cities had fought for over long periods of time. 
Less far-sighted sovereigns could be persuaded by the respective population to effectively convert their territories into free territories by purchasing offices. In some areas of southern Germany, there were even villages that were directly subordinated to imperial rule and independent of the local prince. This buying out of existing sovereign territories could possibly also be a model for the future. As far as the law was concerned, many cities adopted tried and tested legal systems from other free cities. Particularly widespread were the laws of Lübeck and Magdeburg. It was often even regulated that in unclear legal questions, the so-called Magdeburger Schaffenstuhl could be appealed to as a higher court. All this was done by voluntary agreement of the respective city dwellers. The Magdeburg court itself had no power to enforce its decisions in other cities. These city laws were complete packages that regulated both the legal system with rules of procedure and the internal constitution of the city with its various bodies. They had their origins not only in Roman and local law, but also in so-called market law. Whoever organized a market offered the arriving merchants not only a safe marketplace, including easy and safe arrival and departure, but also a market court. Often, this was formed in such a way that the merchants chose sworn judges at the beginning of the market. This procedure guaranteed that merchants had a legal framework tailored to their needs and did not have to prove their guilt or innocence in the event of a dispute by various means still widely used in that day to determine judgments from God, like trials by fire, which could be painful and debilitating. Throughout the Middle Ages, private arbitration courts played an important role, especially where local law offered poor conditions to merchants. Such market and trade locations were thus early forms of special economic zones. In the oldest German municipal law, Freiburg's feudal lord Konrad von Zaringen ruled. So I promise all who visit my market peace and free escort in my realm of power and rule. If someone in this area gets robbed and tells me who did it, I will have the robbed items returned or pay for the damage myself. Incidentally, this security warrant with guaranteed compensation dating from 1120 goes far beyond what today's states offer their citizens in this respect. This idea is just one possibility where free private cities could offer a competitive advantage over traditional states. The then-free imperial cities were governed quasi-democratically in which a council elected by the citizens appointed a headman or mayor. The question of voter eligibility was a source of frequent disputes. However, the number of citizens who were entitled to vote and were allowed to elect a representative to the council continued to grow over time, similar to the city-states of the ancient world. However, the council's barely limited legislative power soon led to a great tangle of rules for all areas of life, which complicated life in the city. Growing debt followed and became the universal problem of the cities of the 15th century. Wealthy people in particular had to take care not to become unpopular in the city in order not to lose their belongings through protests and subsequent show trials before the court of the community. Property taxes were also introduced essentially only by the city councils. Of course, even today, these are still typical problems of participatory models, whose regulatory powers in principle unlimited and which do not provide for any liability on the part of the institutions.
It is also interesting how cities regulated issues of immigration, crime, and taxation. Due to the large number of new city foundings and the sparse settlement in the Middle Ages, there was competition for settlers, especially skilled workers of all kinds, craftsmen and specialists from the flourishing textile industry such as weavers, but also merchants of all kinds were in high demand. The cities needed them in order to develop economically, collect more taxes, and be better able to defend themselves against external enemies. On the other hand, poor people or criminals from outside were not even allowed into the city. In some places, the poor were only allowed to work as day laborers in the city and had to leave it if they could not find employment. Cities earned their income from two main sources, a basic duty on property and customs duties, which were often used to maintain the roads in and around the city and finance the so-called market peace. In addition, there was often a general wealth tax on the assets of all city dwellers, which usually did not exceed 1% per year. In addition, in many places, there were fees new citizens would pay for admission and citizenship, understood as a price for the public goods available in the city. In special crisis situations or for special major projects, such as the construction of a new city wall, indirect taxes were also levied on beverages and similar consumer goods because their broad tax base made them lucrative. Finally, cities earned money from the fines paid for violations of the rules. In the case of more serious offenses or local criminals involved, punishment took the form of fines, pain, such as blows, exposure, such as the pillory, or death, for example by hanging, by self-employed executioners. The prison was only intended for the period of investigation and trial during which torture was not unusual. Criminals who did not come from the city were usually banished. In summary, with regard to criminal law as a common feature of the medieval legal systems, as well as the former Roman Twelve Tables Act, it can be stated that minor or unintentional offenses were almost always punished with compensation and monetary penalties, serious ones almost always with pain or death. It is also striking that the rules on self-defense, coming to the aid of others, citizens' arrest, and on trial and punishment were designed to restore law and order with minimal financial and human resources. In the course of time, the cities formed powerful alliances such as the Suge Deutsche Stadtbund, Association of Southern German Cities, or the Hansa, Hanseatic League, which had member cities throughout Northern Europe and could also defy major powers. However, most free imperial cities lost their independence in the course of the Napoleonic Wars in the year 1803. Frankfurt am Main survived until 1866, Lübeck until 1871, and the Hanseatic cities of Hamburg and Bremen still retained some independent city status as Lander, or federal states within the system of the Federal Republic of Germany. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, born in Frankfurt, foresaw the loss of importance at the beginning of the 19th century. Frankfurt, Bremen, Hamburg, Lübeck are great and brilliant, and their effects on Germany's prosperity cannot be calculated at all. But would they remain what they are if they lost their own sovereignty and were to be annexed as provincial cities to some great German empire? I have cause to doubt it. The city of Lübeck, 
Once the proud capital of the Hanseatic League has today become an insignificant German regional city. The Hansa, circa 1150 to 1669. When the Hanseatic League, also called the German Hanseatic League or just Hansa, gradually developed from a former group of merchants, many contemporary observers were confused. What kind of structure was it? It wasn't a state, not even a union of states. For the cities belonging to it were not sovereign, but belonged to other state entities, predominantly to the Holy Roman Empire. The initial aim of the Hanseatic League was the safety of its affiliated merchants and the representation of common economic interests, especially abroad. Over time, the Hanseatic League developed into an important factor not only in the economic but also in the political and cultural spheres. This was due to the fact that the free imperial cities became increasingly important at the expense of the territorial states, and the Hanseatic merchants usually had the final word in those city councils. The Hanseatic League had the principle of free unification so that merchants who belonged to the Hanseatic League could decide within their city councils to what extent their city would join the other Hanseatic cities, for example, with regard to customs duties or certain trade rules. The heyday of the Hanseatic League was between 1250 and 1400, and at the time of its greatest expansion, almost 300 maritime and inland cities of northern Europe were united in the Hanseatic League, and it dominated the then most important maritime trade area in the North Sea and the Baltic. Through free trade, many Hanseatic cities acquired great wealth, which can still be seen today in numerous important buildings such as the Holstentor in Lübeck. The Hanstag Convention was the supreme body and institution at which the interests of the community were negotiated, decided, and enforced. These included in particular the ratification of treaties, the negotiation of trade privileges, negotiations with foreign rulers, decisions on peace, war and economic blockades, the establishment of economic regulations, and the admission or exclusion from the community. Apart from the Hanstag Convention, the League had no other organizational structures, no constitution, no financial budget, or civil servants. The delegated representatives of the cities, the Tagfahrer, returned to their city with the results of the Hanstag Convention, where it was up to the city council to ratify or reject the decisions. Attempts to establish membership fees and clear leadership failed. Despite all lack of leadership, the consensus in the Hanseatic League was often strong enough to ensure safety at sea, enforce embargoes or wage wars, for example against Denmark or the pirates in the North and Baltic Seas. Most cities adopted their municipal legal codes from the Hanseatic city of Lübeck, which was generally recognized as the informal capital of the Hanseatic League. In legal disputes in other Hanseatic cities, the court in Lübeck often served as the Court of Appeal. Branches of the Hanseatic League had their own court, for example in Bergen, Norway, where the proceedings were decided promptly and in accordance with the standards of the Hanseatic merchants. They were very keen to be acquitted in their own courts in the event of accusations in order to maintain their reputation among merchants. At the same time, the same merchants may not even appear at hearings of the local courts because they and their trading partners did not grant them authority. 
From the 16th century onwards, under Lübeck's leadership, the Hanseatic League began to become entangled in numerous wars in northern Europe, which reduced the military and political power of the Hanseatic League. Many cities were tired of spending money and soldiers for the numerous political adventures and wars involving Lübeck. The League's final decline began with the strengthening of nearby sovereign territorial powers, which forced many cities to leave the Hanseatic League. In its final phase, the Hanseatic League actually consisted only of the free cities of Hamburg, Lübeck, and Bremen. The last Hanseatic Convention took place in 1669. The new Hanseatic League, founded in 1980, to which only former Hanseatic cities are allowed to belong, has so far only had cultural and tourist significance. The adoption of proven legal systems, the free choice of law, effective defensive alliances without centralized structures, free trade and mutual support, were characteristics of the Hanseatic League that are still exemplary today. Venice 697 to 1797. Particularly successful cities have themselves become independent great powers. This applies not only to Genoa but also to Venice, which has been able to retain its independence for over a thousand years. Until 1797, Venice was the capital of the Republic of the same name and for a long time one of the largest European cities. Until the 16th century, Venice was one of the world's most important trading capitals and at times had the largest merchant and war fleet in the world. Despite its own limited resources and relatively small and scattered dominion, Venice was able to play a leading role in the Mediterranean region for a long time. Besides diplomatic skill, this was mainly due to the economic strength of the city, which for centuries had a quasi-monopoly position on trade with the Orient, especially for salt and grain. The legendary founding date of 421 dates back to the twilight of the Roman Empire, a time when the surrounding inhabitants fled the invading Visigoths and Huns into the lagoon of Venice and settled there, as it was easier to defend. Venice was originally part of the Byzantine Empire and formally retained this status until about 900. In fact, however, Venice became independent with the appointment of the first doge in 697. It is remarkable that Venice managed to remain an independent community with its own diplomacy and its own military power amid changing alliances between the major and regional powers for a period of 1,100 years. And these were not quiet times in that region. The list of powers and competitors with which Venice had to contend, and which it often outlived, includes the Lombards, the Byzantines, the Holy Roman Empire, the Papal States, free cities such as Genoa, Bologna, and Pisa, the Normans, Hungary, Croats, Habsburgs, and Ottomans, and finally Spain and France. In foreign policy, the Republic relied on diplomacy, efficient information gathering, and pragmatism. Venice kept out of ideological and religious disputes as far as possible. The economic well-being of the city took precedence over the expansion of political power. Inside, careful attention was paid to maintaining a balance of power between the various groups and maintaining checks on power wielded by the state authorities. This is one of the reasons for the unique stability of this state in a troubled Europe. In 1100 years, 
not a single government was overthrown. The domination of a single family, as had become customary in the other city-states of northern Italy, was prevented. This was not always achieved without conflicts, and the maintenance of a far-reaching network of police and spies was a further price for the stability and longevity, but overall it was possible to prevent too much concentration of power. Venice also had a reputation for political stability and personal freedom for its citizens, which was the exception in Europe at the end of the Middle Ages. The historian Gilmore writes, The patrician and the gondolier lived in different social conditions, but legally they were equal. Legal privileges for the nobility were unknown. Civil and criminal justice was fair overall, and women enjoyed unique rights. The foreign propaganda about dungeons in which political prisoners languished was pure slander. Religion was important, but it remained subordinate to the state. The doge and not the bishops were the guarantors of the Republic of Venice. Veneciani, poi Christiani. This is how the inhabitants used to describe themselves. First Venetians and then Christians. Such self-confidence naturally annoyed the popes, who repeatedly pronounced an interdict against Venice. The achievements of Venice were difficult for the rest of Europe to bear. The success of the Republic was too blatant and too glamorous for jealous rivals to accept. The Venetians were called greedy and insidious because they traded with the Ottomans as long as there was no war. Only with the advent of the Atlantic and Indian trade and the strengthening of the territorial states did Venice lose at least relative trade power and sink to local size. This is when the city changed to a strategy of diversification through the mass production of glass beads and the manufacturing of artful pieces of glass. The region is still known for the latter. Venice was able to maintain its independence until 1797, when the city was occupied by Napoleon. Monaco, since 1297. While Venice has lost its independence, another Mediterranean community founded by Genoese noblemen has survived to this day. This is the Principality of Monaco, which can be exemplary for free private cities in many respects because of its size, its special relationship with France, and its solutions to the issues of security, immigration, and financing of public expenditure. Some claim that Monaco is already a kind of private state that publishes its figures like a stock corporation and regards its inhabitants as customers. The civil wars between the Ghibellines and Guelphs in northern Italy led to the expulsion from Genoa of the papal Guelphs and thus also of the Grimaldi family in 1296. On January 8, 1297, the Grimaldi managed to penetrate the fortress of Monaco, which until then had been in Ghibelline hands, and conquer it with their troops in a surprise attack. Since then, the Grimaldi family has ruled Monaco, with only brief interruptions due to foreign occupation. In 1489, Monaco's independence was formally recognized by the King of France and the Duke of Savoy. As a result, independence was questioned time and again, often by France, which now surrounds Monaco from three sides. Today, Monaco's sovereignty, including its coastal waters, is universally recognized. The principality has been a constitutional monarchy since 1911. Freedom of expression is guaranteed.
The Prince Appoints the Government Since the 1962 amendment to the Constitution, there has been a parliament elected in free and secret elections every five years. However, the prince has the right of veto on acts of parliament. In 1993, the country joined the United Nations. Monaco is a dwarf state with an area of only two square kilometers. It is home to 38,000 people, making it the most densely populated country in the world. About 50,000 people work in the principality, most of them daily commuters from France or nearby Italy. They usually cannot afford to take an apartment in Monaco. Despite formal recognition as a sovereign state, the relationship with France occupies a special position that restricts Monaco's independence to a certain extent. Monaco has concluded several treaties with France over the centuries, defining the relationship between the two countries. Thus, even the last major crisis between the two countries was resolved by treaty. At the beginning of the 1960s, French companies and private individuals increasingly moved their headquarters to tax-free Monaco, although they generated the bulk of their income in France. France then demanded that Monaco impose French taxation on all its inhabitants and companies. The final compromise reached in 1963 provides that persons with French nationality who did not live in Monaco before 1962 should pay taxes in France. In addition, Monaco adopted the French VAT rate and pays part of the VAT to France. The principality also undertakes to exercise its sovereignty rights in such a way as to safeguard France's economic and political interests. This also includes not allowing persons to enter who are unwanted in France. In return, France assumes responsibility for Monaco's external security. Monaco, with its diversity of cultural, culinary, and sporting offerings, combined with its civility, its history, its splendor, and its reputation as the home of the rich and beautiful, can certainly be regarded as a culmination point of European high culture. There is no shortage of critics, but tourists and day visitors keep coming in droves, and the demand for housing exceeds the supply many times over, which is why property prices are the highest in the world. About 30% of its inhabitants are said to have liquid assets of more than one million U.S. dollars. Monaco is considered the state with the lowest poverty rate and the highest life expectancy worldwide. In the middle of the 19th century, Monaco was still poor. The population had even declined to 300 people at one time. Only with the opening of a successful casino and the railway connection in 1868 did the turnaround come about. When the annual revenues from the casino business financed 95% of the state budget, the prince decided to waive taxes on his subjects from then on. In principle, it has remained so to this day. Monaco does not levy income, inheritance, or capital gains taxes. However, companies that generate the bulk of their income outside Monaco pay corporate taxes. Added to this is the aforementioned value-added tax, which currently accounts for about half of the state budget. Revenues from state casinos and hotels today play only a minor role, about 5% the rest being financed by corporate taxes, property taxes, and other levies. The budget shows a slight surplus, and Monaco is not only debt-free, but also has liquid reserves of more than two annual budgets.
The Principality has had a customs union with France since 1865, through which it also participates in the EU common market, but is not itself a member of the European Union. Monaco uses the euro as its currency and has also received the right from the EU to mint a certain number of coins itself. About 80% of the population are foreigners without Monegasque citizenship. People from 139 nations live together peacefully. Monaco has the lowest crime and poverty rate in the world, without border controls, and despite tens of thousands of commuters and just as many visitors every day. How is that possible? The Principality has the highest police density per capita in the world and monitors its entire territory with cameras. There is a police officer and a video camera for every 70 inhabitants. The police have a total strength of 520 people, plus the same number of private security personnel and two paramilitary units, Palace Guard and Fire Department. Due to the urban nature of the border to the neighboring French municipalities and the high volume of traffic, it would be difficult to carry out strict border controls. Monaco instead monitors incoming vehicles with license plate readers and by visual inspection by police officers posted at the points of entry. Suspicious persons are detected by the camera surveillance and then questioned by patrolmen. Incidentally, Monaco looks closely at who it brings into the country as a resident. If you want to settle in Monaco, you must also be entitled to reside in France, have proof of an apartment in Monaco, rent or property, have sufficient income or assets to cover your living expenses, as well as a CV and a police clearance certificate from your country of origin for all adult family members. On this basis, an internet search is then carried out and a personal interview with a police officer is conducted. If there are no qualms, Monaco grants a residence permit for one year, which can be extended twice more for one year before a three-year residence permit is granted, etc. This gives Monaco the option of simply not extending the residence permit for dubious or unpleasant new citizens instead of having lengthy legal disputes about the revocation of a residence permit. Monaco has no tolerance for crime. Convicted non-Monegasques must leave the principality, possibly after serving a prison sentence, even for minor offenses such as shoplifting. It is the combination of all these measures that is, the camera surveillance, the strict immigration rules, the deportation of criminals, and the strong police presence, which means that parents in Monaco can send their children out onto the streets at midnight without hesitation. Hong Kong Since 1843 The development of Hong Kong is an example of how a city-state can work its way up from simple beginnings with a classical liberal system to considerable prosperity and also to enormous size. The population has multiplied from 7,500 in 1843 to 1.7 million in 1945 to over 7.3 million in 2015, mainly due to immigration from the People's Republic of China. For many mainland Chinese, the British colony was a refuge from the Chinese Civil War and later the Communist People's Republic of China. Today, the quality of life and life expectancy, per capita income, and business friendliness in Hong Kong are among the world's best. 
Hong Kong was under British administration from 1843 to 1997, but was able to gain extensive autonomy, especially after the Second World War. This enabled its leadership to steer a very different course during a period when planned economy, protectionism, and Keynesianism were very popular in the motherland and elsewhere. Hong Kong allowed free markets, kept taxes low, and did not accumulate debts, but instead built up a reserve equivalent to one annual budget. This enabled high growth rates lasting decades. Basically, it was only a small group of English colonial officials who set this course. They were advised by official and unofficial members of the Legislative Council, the latter mostly Chinese businessmen. In 1959, the then-Governor Robert Black told this body that Hong Kong was probably the only remaining country in the world with genuine free trade. He added that he was proud of it and sure that all those present felt the same. The goal was to raise everyone's standard of living through full employment and thus also to integrate the many migrants arriving from China. Hong Kong's chief financial officer, John Cowperthwaite, derived from this the doctrine of positive non-interventionism according to which the government interferes in the economy only in very exceptional cases and instead creates the legal and infrastructural framework to facilitate market-based development. In contrast to the British motherland, Hong Kong has permitted free markets without redistribution and thus achieved enormous success. The direct comparison between the two systems is clearly in Hong Kong's favor, as it has overtaken the UK in all relevant indicators. Cowperthwaite had recognized, In the long run, the aggregate of decisions of individual businessmen exercising individual judgment in a free economy, even if often mistaken, is less likely to do harm than the centralized decisions of a government, and certainly the harm is likely to be counteracted faster. He further noticed that every dollar the government takes away from the taxpayer could otherwise have been used by him to meet a need or increase his well-being or make an investment. It is thanks to Cowperthwaite's perseverance and intellectual independence that this path was maintained even in times of economic downturn. Even in Hong Kong, there was no shortage of efforts to raise taxes, restrict imports, control prices, and increase government activity. On the subject of political participation, Governor Grantham said in his farewell speech that critics often overlook the fact that democracy is not an end in itself, but only a means to an end, namely to guarantee individual freedom. He concluded that Hong Kong may not be democratic, but freedom would be guaranteed, and there were few places in the world where the guiding principle, live and let live, would be so well manifest. Grantham hit the nail on the head. While at the time he argued that freedom could exist in exceptional cases, even without democracy, today the question has to be asked whether economic freedom in particular can survive at all in democratic systems. In view of the tendency of the majority to demand state interventions of all kinds, the permanent guarantee of a laissez-faire system based on Hong Kong's model does not seem possible in democracies. If even a determined member of government like Cowperthwaite can avert all possible requests for intervention in a non-democratic system only with the greatest effort, then this is probably hopeless in a democracy. A Cowperthwaite would simply be voted out of office, 
A position of non-interference, that is, inaction, is lost in the political battle for votes. This is the case even though his approach would demonstrably benefit the electorate. A social order that grows at 5% a year but only has a government spending rate of 20% of all GDP initially spends less on each individual than a system that has twice the government spending rate but a growth rate of only 2% a year. After 24 years, however, both societies would already spend the same amount per citizen in absolute figures, and after 48 years, the leaner but faster-growing system could even double the amount for each individual despite a much lower government quota. That's how it happened in Hong Kong, but majorities aren't that patient. Deng Xiaoping, who initiated the opening of the People's Republic of China to a market economy and who is perhaps one of the greatest Chinese reformers in history, is said to have taken Hong Kong as an example. He realized that Hong Kong's economic system was obviously working, but not that of the People's Republic. This concerned in particular the existence of free markets and the right to acquire private property, including ownership of the means of production. Following Hong Kong's example, special economic zones have been established throughout the country since the early 1980s, beginning in Shenzhen. These have proven themselves so successful that they have been expanded further and further, and China has been experiencing an enormous economic upswing ever since. Finally, the free market system was extended to the whole country. Today, no one has to go hungry in China, despite its earlier reputation for famine and poverty. It can therefore be argued that Hong Kong, because of its role model function, has changed China far more than it has changed itself since the political takeover by China in 1997. Since then, Hong Kong has been a Chinese special administrative zone headed by a so-called chief executive, maintaining a market economy, its own private laws based on English law, its own authorities, its own currency, and internal autonomy. Under the one country, two systems principle agreed to between China and the United Kingdom in 1984, Hong Kong will retain its political and economic autonomy for at least 50 years after the acquisition. Exceptions are foreign policy and matters of defense. In this respect, Hong Kong is certainly a model for the relationship between a free private city and a host state. Non-interventionism, however, had already been undermined in British times after the departure of Cowperthwaite and with increasing parliamentary participation. Today, Hong Kong has minimum wages, anti-discrimination laws, mandatory old-age provisions, and a taxation equivalent to that of Western countries. Businessmen report that parts of the civil service, which has been replaced or supplemented by mainland Chinese, are now susceptible to corruption, which was previously unthinkable. Moreover, to the regret of many Hong Kong Chinese, the government in Beijing often interferes in domestic politics, and the legally guaranteed freedom of expression and freedom of the press are in fact restricted. Nevertheless, Hong Kong is still one of the freest places in the world with regard to economic activity. Dubai, since 1971. Dubai is another remarkable success story. At the time of independence from Great Britain in 1971, Dubai was a small town of only regional importance. 
Today, less than 50 years later, the city has the most important airport and seaport in the Middle East, the world's tallest building, the world's largest shopping center, and the world's largest flower garden. Artificial islands in the form of a palm tree have been created on Dubai's coast. The city is visited by around 15 million foreign tourists every year, making Dubai one of the most visited metropolises in the world. The metropolitan area is home to 2.7 million people, over 80% of whom are foreigners. The main economic sectors are real estate, trade, ports, and financial services. Overall, oil and gas production is of little economic importance. Dubai finances its national budget mainly through numerous indirect taxes. Taxes on hotel accommodation, alcohol consumption, rental income, electricity, water, and the taxation of profits of the oil industry and banks. The city of Dubai is the capital of the emirate of the same name, which belongs to the United Arab Emirates. As such, it is an absolute monarchy. There are no constitution, elections, or political participation in Dubai. The Emirate of Dubai maintains its own armed forces in addition to those integrated into the United Arab Emirates. Dubai nationals enjoy numerous privileges and social benefits. Nevertheless, Dubai is highly attractive for immigrants and is also home to many internationally active companies. This is possible because Dubai has created conditions that are attractive not only for companies, but also for their employees. There are guaranteed tax exemptions for 50 years, investment protection guarantees, and tailor-made special economic zones for various industries. Some of them even have their own legal system based on English common law, such as the Dubai International Financial Center. Dubai offers freedom from direct taxes, low regulatory density, and at the same time a certain tolerance. A liberal lifestyle is in fact possible in certain places despite the conflicting legal situation, as is the practice of a religion other than that of Islam. Immigration is strictly regulated and refugees are not admitted. Anyone who loses his job must leave the country. It is also less attractive that even foreigners who have lived and worked in Dubai their whole lives have to spend their retirement elsewhere after their work visa has expired. The crime rate is low and Dubai is considered safe. Imams are controlled by the state, and anyone who preaches religious hatred or extremism is usually imprisoned and then expelled. The local Sharia legal system, which also applies to foreigners, still knows punishments such as stoning and flogging. Homosexuality is punishable by death. Raped women are arrested after being reported for extramarital sex unless they can present four male witnesses confirming their story. Kissing in public is a crime, as are failure to pay a bill in time, touching someone in a full bar to shove him aside, or the consumption of alcohol, even in licensed bars. Engaged couples are liable to prosecution if they share a room, even within their own four walls. Most of the time, such crimes are not prosecuted, but sometimes they are. In this respect, the legal system must be described as arbitrary. At present, no fundamental reform is in sight. Singapore Since 1965 Since independence in 1965, Singapore has developed into one of the richest cities in the world. 
Within a generation, the city-state made the leap from a developing country to an industrial nation and today has more than five and a half million inhabitants. After independence from the UK in 1963, Singapore was initially part of the newly formed state of Malaysia, but left it only two years later due to differences over the institutionalized preference of ethnic Malay people over the Chinese. Lacking any raw materials, a significant hinterland and any established structures, but burdened with a diverse population lacking a common culture and religion, the first Prime Minister, Lee Kuan Yew, called Harry, 1923-2015, considered the father of modern Singapore, was faced with the task of building a stable society. Although originally a socialist, he recognized that the city could thrive best with free trade, incentives for business startups, and an economy that was as unregulated as possible. Against the view widespread in the West at the time, and in some cases still today, that large international corporations would exploit poor developing countries and only leave scorched earth behind, Lee Kuan Yew recognized that the settlement of such multinationals could create jobs and thus prosperity on a large scale. And so it happened to Singapore's advantage. The economic freedom, combined with the restriction of democratic and political rights and strict enforcement of rules to maintain social harmony, still characterizes Singapore's development today. The party of the state founder has won every election since independence. In practice, it is a one-party system. Since this is associated with restricted freedom of the press and of expression and many restrictions on personal freedoms, Singapore is best classified as a semi-authoritarian system. The combination of an authoritarian, purely fact-driven government with the desire for good governance and internal selection based on merit and performance is officially regarded as the recipe for the success of the Singapore model. Singapore is a multi-ethnic and multi-religious city-state in which the ethnic Chinese are by far the largest population group, followed by Malays and Indians. It is one of the countries with the highest per capita income worldwide and occupies top international positions in terms of education, health care, life expectancy, quality of life, and personal safety. Ninety percent of all homes are occupied by their respective owners. Although there are four official languages, English is the lingua franca and the most widely spoken. Singapore's economy is considered one of the freest, most innovative, most competitive, dynamic, and business-friendly in the world. There is no minimum wage, and so the unemployment rate is also one of the lowest in the world. Singapore also has low tax rates, no corruption, good infrastructure, and a skilled workforce, making it very attractive to foreign companies. Thousands of multinational companies have their headquarters or branches in Singapore. The economy is diversified, the main branches being financial services, oil refining, production of electronic components, and tourism. Despite its great economic freedoms, Singapore is also a welfare state. There are grants and programs ranging from housing and medical care to schooling for the children. According to Lee Kuan Yew, only a market economy leads to prosperity, but also creates losers or people who consider themselves as such. For this reason, the state must create a balance to maintain social harmony. 
Since the state itself is involved in the economy through numerous companies, it can afford to offer all its citizens support for medical care, electricity and water supply, as well as local public transport. Here, too, citizens are preferred. Unlike Monaco or Dubai, Singapore is interested in its inhabitants acquiring citizenship, so about two-thirds of Singapore's residents are also Singapore citizens. Traffic, transport, and private car ownership are just as strictly regulated as the housing market. Singapore's legal system is based on English common law with significant local characteristics. The court system is considered one of the most reliable and best in Asia. Singapore has draconian penalties in criminal law, such as the death penalty, which is obligatory for murder, and corporal punishment for graffiti, for example. Lee Kuan Yew argued that his own experience had shown that poverty does not automatically lead to crime, as Western sociologists claim. There had hardly been enough food during the Japanese occupation, but the city would still have been very safe, as the occupying forces would have imposed draconian punishments. Many forms of behavior are punishable. Homosexual sexual practices are banned, for example. However, the excessive interference of the state in private affairs and the lack of personal freedoms is recognized as an obstacle to development and attractiveness. The ban on the sale of certain chewing gum was lifted in 2004, as was the ban on oral and anal sex in 2007, which also applied to married couples. Singapore has a considerable army for its size with modern battle tanks, airplanes, ships, and even submarines. There is compulsory military service and reserve exercises take place regularly. About 250,000 Singaporeans are either in active service or reservists. Singapore had asked Israel for assistance in building up the army, and there is still close cooperation on security issues. Singapore is a member of the regional Asian Alliance, which also has a security policy function. For Lee Kuan Yew, and this also applies to his successors today, security and prosperity have always gone hand in hand. He described diplomacy as the most important foreign policy instrument, but without a credible military component, it remained toothless. Despite its impressive military potential, Singapore is cautious in foreign and security policy. Freedom of religion is enshrined in the Constitution and is guaranteed. Singapore pursues the concept of muscular secularism. Religious extremism is not tolerated and is punished immediately because it is regarded as a danger to social harmony due to the composition of the population. Degradations of other faiths and missionary activities with which religious harmony could be disturbed are prohibited by law. Headscarves are forbidden in schools. Singapore sees itself as a secular state in which the different religions live together in peace. The city-state has strict immigration rules and takes particular care to ensure that the ratios between the various population groups do not change too much. It determines which qualifications meet standards for immigration according to needs and the economic situation. Sandy Springs since 2005. The U.S. city of Sandy Springs is not an autonomous community, but interesting for another reason. Practically all municipal services are provided by private companies. 
The city in the U.S. state of Georgia was the first new city to be founded there in 50 years. After years of preparation, residents dissatisfied with the county's performance managed to overcome the necessary political hurdles in order to establish the city as a newly independent municipality on December 1, 2005. A virtue was made out of the necessity of not having their own administration. After visiting the private city of Weston in Florida, one of the driving forces in the city, Oliver Porter suggested that private companies be commissioned by bidding to manage the city. In addition to greater flexibility and the absence of political influence on the provision of services, the pension problem in particular spoke in favor of this step. The existence of growing pension obligations for city employees has brought many U.S. municipalities to the brink of insolvency. Sandy Springs has all municipal services provided by private companies on a contractual basis with the exception of the police, fire department, and courts. This applies to both administrative and technical functions. In the event of poor performance, the providers can be replaced by the mayor or by the municipal council. In 2015, after 10 years, the city was able to draw the conclusion that the quality of municipal services had consistently improved, but that cost had fallen by 10 to 40 percent depending on the sector. During this period, Sandy Springs not only did not incur any debts, but was even able to build up a reserve of 45 million U.S. dollars. The city is correspondingly attractive. Oliver Porter reports that there is great interest in the Sandy Springs model both in the USA and abroad. Nine more cities with a total of more than 1.5 million inhabitants have been built according to this model so far, each of them newly founded. All attempts to transfer the model to already existing municipalities, however, failed due to resistance from politics and administration. Even in cases where private providers had guaranteed a 25% reduction in costs compared to the current situation, the fear of losing power or jobs had prevented the introduction of the new model. Lessons There are many lessons to be drawn from the successful city-states and free cities described above. A society is successful if many people want to live there voluntarily over a longer period of time. All other key figures, in contrast, are secondary and merely an indication of why a system is in demand. Here, too, the subjective value theory applies. If people, subjectively, prefer a system, it is objectively successful, at least if it can survive a certain period of time under its own steam. This is clearly evident in the examples studied, which still exist today. They have proven their ability to survive, and all have more demand for immigration than they need. All systems examined are imperfect, and none is alike. Their success suggests that we should at least take some of their practices as an inspiration. Singapore, for instance, can be an example for developing countries. After all, the shortcomings of the democratic model are particularly evident in Africa. Anyone who believes that a minimum state with low taxes and free markets is the most suitable model for raising everyone's standard of living must say goodbye to mass democracy anyway, as both concepts cannot be implemented simultaneously. The majority will always follow those who offer free government services and more regulation to solve problems.
Accordingly, the government of Rwanda, for example, has expressly taken Singapore as an example and since then has met with considerable success. Obviously, many roads lead to Rome. There is not a single working concept that excludes all others. First of all, this is a good sign with regard to a possible future diversity of forms living together. Nevertheless, there are some commonalities among the case studies shown which indicate that they were probably key factors in the success of these cities. It should be noted, for example, that free trade and a free market economy, as unregulated as possible, have been a decisive success factor in practically all cases. Because of their small size, these cities could not afford protectionism anyhow. It is remarkable, however, how much more prosperity can be created in a short time by free market economies in the face of highly regulated systems. Hong Kong, Singapore, and Dubai also prove that Protestant ethics, Max Weber, is not a necessary condition for the success or emergence of market economy systems. Another common feature is that the successful cities choose their immigrants according to their respective needs or specifications. This corresponds to the knowledge gained above on the subject of immigration. After a certain prosperity has been achieved, as in Dubai, Hong Kong, and Singapore, uncontrolled immigration becomes a danger. Wherever there is something to get, there are also elements very quickly that want to create prosperity by taking it away rather than by honest work. This would jeopardize security and make the respective city-state unattractive. Open borders in the sense of uncontrolled immigration for everyone is therefore out of the question for the governments of successful city-states. Another common characteristic of the city-states examined is that they do not allow democratic co-determination or only to a limited extent. This corresponds to the conclusions drawn above that a far-reaching decoupling of participation and liability is not promising and ultimately leads to endless distributional struggles, outrage competition, and over-indebtedness. But why are these cities also attractive for immigrants from Western countries, even though the usual democratic co-determination is not possible? Each individual does his own cost-benefit analysis greater economic freedom and more security against personal freedoms, more opportunities for self-determination against fewer opportunities for participation, especially since participation in parliamentary democracies is limited to casting a vote every few years, which, taken alone, has no weight. With the exception of Dubai, all of the current examples listed can be regarded as states based on the rule of law. Hong Kong, of course, with a declining tendency. But Dubai also keeps to the promises it has made to the corresponding special zones or even allows their own jurisdiction to a certain extent. In this respect, there is predictability and thus also planability and stability for immigrants, which at least partially outweighs deficits in the rule of law. Another common feature is that the city-states are defensive, in a limited way even Monaco, and maintain larger armed forces with appropriate political independence. At the same time, they strive to have good relationships with their neighbors and try to avoid conflicts as far as possible. Concessions are also made, if necessary, which a sovereign country would not have to make. Furthermore, the question of social harmony, especially in multi-ethnic and multi-religious cities, 
is answered by the fact that certain rules of coexistence are not negotiable and are also strictly enforced. In this respect, there is no tolerance of intolerance in particular. This also makes sense for free private cities because societies that initially have no common history or culture otherwise have no cohesion to hold them together. The problem is not the peaceful coexistence of the most diverse groups, but rather the striving for prerogatives or even dominance, in the worst case combined with the willingness to incite different population groups against each other or even use violence. The example showed that a secure, stable order with a high level of economic freedom can be successful even if personal freedoms are restricted. Singapore in particular seems to have recognized, however, that further qualitative growth requires the granting of greater personal liberty. Nor is it understandable how social harmony is promoted by government dictates about which sexual practices may or may not take place in the privacy of the bedroom. Maintaining social peace depends on how people behave towards others, and that should be the sole sphere of any regulation. Finally, the Sandy Springs example proves that the establishment of free private cities on previously uninhabited territory should be much easier than the transformation of existing communities. A look at the free cities of the past reveals a fact whose knowledge has largely been lost in today's societies. Criminal prosecution and detention of criminals, not to mention costly rehabilitation measures, cost money, namely citizens' money. This is the second time that they are harmed. Therefore, it is obvious and reasonable to minimize these costs. This does not mean reintroducing the death penalty, pillory, and corporal punishment, but the renunciation of prison sentences for minor crimes and instead the payment of a fine or instead of labor service, as well as the subsequent exile from the city, are procedures that can also be exemplary for free private cities. Prison would then only be required for a few serious offenses and would be followed by exile. Role models do not mean that these problems cannot be solved in any other way, especially with regard to crime, immigration, and the maintenance of social peace in the city. However, the methods presented here have the advantage that they have been proven to work. Many other ideas cannot claim this. It therefore seems prudent to use proven methods for certain areas when establishing free private cities. Change or further development can then take place evolutionarily via the market.